Making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut d'études européennes of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on inequality and the European Union is a product of the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence EU Qualis and it's co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Soldevila and I am your host. An activist sentenced to eight months of community service for facilitating abortion pills. The creation of LGBT ideology free zones. A minister for family, natality and equal opportunity who opposes abortion and same-sex unions. Imposed disclaimers on children's books that portrayed so-called behaviors deviating from traditional gender roles. It is hard to believe that all these things are happening in the European Union but they are. Gender has become an ideological battlefield that political actors on the extremes are using to gain power. To help us make sense of the anti-gender campaigns and actions in the EU, the strategies, actors, and networks behind them, I have the pleasure to welcome today Professor David Paternot. Thank you for joining Making Sense of EU. David Paternot, you are Associate Professor in Sociology at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, where you co-direct Strige, an interdisciplinary research structure that focuses on gender, equality, and sexuality. Your own research has long focused on same-sex marriage advocacy and LGBT activism, and you have more recently been studying anti-gender campaigns and attacks on academic freedom in Europe. Gender is a word that has become loaded. It has defenders and detractors, and it unleashes passions like very few topics. But what do we talk about when we discuss gender and in this specific case, um, gender-based inequality. Yeah, I would say there are two things. One thing is what we call gender in social sciences or humanities more broadly, which is about how society constructs the differences between the sexes and also the idea of what the, the sex itself or why it should matter. Um, and just to quote a famous French gender thinker, is why, uh, for instance, our genitals matter more than or little too, for instance. That's gender as we tend to use it. The other thing is gender as it is used in the examples you have just mentioned, which is often called gender ideology, which is the official Vatican terms, but it's also sometimes called gender theory, like in the French case, but also in Slovenia, or genderism, which is an expression we find more in German-speaking countries. And there, this is a term that is used to attack all sorts of reforms around women's rights, not all women's rights, to be honest, especially around freedom of reproduction and sexual freedom for women and LGBTI rights, but it's also combined with other things around, for instance, religious freedom. The whole debate about the Christian roots of the European Union is connected to that, for instance, as well. And there the idea, the, the idea of the people uh, using that language is that all these different reforms that they dislike for different, often religious, but not only reasons, are actually provoked by what they call gender or gender theory. So that would be the framework, the ideological framework that explains all these reforms they dislike. And obviously the EU would be one of the key places where this ideology would be produced and promoted. And this is linked to this Christian backdrop in which our cultures evolve. 
You have focused some of your research on contestation of gender-based rights and on anti-gender activism. What have you learned about the actors and the networks around it and how they interact and produce these anti-gender campaigns? There is a dense network of actors and they're very diverse. So actually when we started to do that sort of research about 10 years ago, it was a bit out of surprise. In the academic world, uh, in the NGO world, it was more out of fear because suddenly they were uh, seeing important defeats like the defeat of the Estrella report at the European Parliament in 2013, which was one of the many uh, reports of the European Parliament on sexual reproductive rights, but it was defeated because conservatives could organize. And based on that, we tried to understand what was happening because it really came as a surprise We connected it to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church produced that discourse as a response to developments at the United Nations. But then it's really the combination of this Vatican discourse with strategies that often have been imported from the U.S. conservative right. And it's really, we don't know exactly how it happened, but a combination of these two things that have produced the campaigns. And then we have seen the development of a huge scene of NGOs, groups of citizens, that sort of things, both at the national level, the local level, but also the transnational level. And we have a dense network of organizations that work at a global scale. And what we see is really a professionalization and an internationalization of those movements. So we have very good lawyers who could perfectly got their degree uh, here at the Institute and then suddenly work in these NGOs like others work in other kind of NGOs. Then what has happened is the first step. Then the second step is that some political parties got interested in those struggles, especially, not only, but especially on the far right. And these groups have started to use those campaigns for different reasons. And some got elected, like happened with Meloni in Italy, for instance. The other scenario is people who were already in power, and the most iconic cases are Orban in Hungary and Putin in Russia, who, as far as we know, are not terribly interested in gender, they're not terribly religious, but they've understood the interest of using those notions to get votes, to scare people. So it's one of the many tools they use to remain in power and consolidate their power. Sometimes actors that are even in competition join forces around gender and, and gender activism. Yes, this is the idea of symbolic glue that was proposed already almost 10 years ago by colleagues from Hungary and Poland, especially Andrea Peto, Esther Kovacs, and a few others. And the idea is really that gender is a common ground where different people who disagree on other things can agree. We can see the same with the Catholic Church today. Uh, Pope Francis is definitely in the middle of many conflicts at the Vatican and in the Church, especially with people who are closer to the far right, especially on issues of migration. At the same time, he keeps talking the language of gender ideology. And one hypothesis is that it is one of the languages where he can find or still try to find a common ground in his own church. And we see that phenomenon happening also with politicians, with different sorts of people, for instance, again, with Pope Francis. He disagrees a lot with uh, Matteo Salvini, much more than Meloni, but at the same time, both speak that language of gender ideology. So you have some bridges with actors who often are not likely to work. If you take Latin America, to go a bit further, it's very surprising to see evangelicals and Catholics working together because usually they're competitors on the religious market, but there they found the ground to actually do things together. And this is a pattern you find in many countries, the same on the East with Orthodox churches and uh, Catholics who can also work together. But one of the trends seems to be that these actors Actors that might be cultural, religious, end up influencing politics and political power. 
it becomes uh, it translates into votes, into influence in electoral processes. How does it build bridges from one thing to the other? Well, I think there are two phenomena. One, you have anti-gender, let's say, religious activists who decide to invest in politics. A famous example for the European scene is the former Spanish politician Jaime Mayor Oreja, who was a minister of interior in Spain for the conservative, the popular party, so not the far right. And he, he was also an MEP. And at the European Parliament, he started to work a lot on these anti-gender issues. At the same time, he's the head of several foundations, the head of several international networks. So it's an example of someone who was very much involved in this anti-gender struggle, but was also involved in politics and brought with him his ideas in politics. That's one thing. The other thing is what I mentioned with Orban, for instance. He's not very... Um, Salvini would be the same. And Salvini actually says it openly. It's identifying a political opportunity in a yeah. topic that yeah. brings people exactly. together. It's a really building a scapegoat, finding an opportunity to attract votes. Like migrants. Yes. Also to change discourse. In a sense, if you take the old story of the Great Replacement that has nothing to do with gender ideology, it's an idea invented by an atheist, gay, far-right thinker, French guy, Renaud Camus. And the Catholic discourse would be a bit different. This is the demographic winter. The idea that we have no kids anymore because of contraception, women's rights, LGBTI rights, etc. But people like Salvini or Orban put the two things together, saying, well, actually, if you get the Islamization of Europe, so the idea of great replacement in terms of population, it's because women don't have kids anymore. So if you want to avoid the Islamization of Hungary, for instance, well, you just make sure that Hungarian-born or Hungarian native women have kids so that you avoid bringing so many Muslims and what we saw with the migration crisis and the way countries like Hungary responded. You mentioned that it came as a surprise uh, to people working on the field. How long do you think this has been cooking behind the scenes? Well, there is a long story and a short story. The short story started in the mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, you have these big UN conferences. The biggest one is Beijing, 1995, on women's rights. But you have also 1994, Nairobi, on population development, and even 1993, Vienna, on human rights. And there you have major changes at the level of the United Nations and the introduction of uh, concepts like gender, like sexual reproductive rights, in the official human rights language used by the UN. And the church tries to organize, and then they spend about 10 years between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s to cook their discourse. And it was cooked in several kitchens, not only in the Vatican, especially in Catholic intellectual settings, both in Latin America. Peru, for instance, was a key place. Colombia was another one and uh, in several parts of Europe. And that was ready by the mid 2000s and is when they start to spread that. So that's the short story. The longest story, you have different actors who have been opposing that sort of rights for a long time. The Catholic Church is one. Some far-right groups could be another one. The American conservative right wing would be another kind of group. And no, they have found more a kind of common language. They have seized the opportunity they also. Seized, yes. And also it's a way to relaunch their activism. They found a new way, for instance, if you take the French case and the Manif Portus, it's very interesting when you look at the groups behind the Manif Portus, many are very well-known and old anti-abortion organization, but they use this anti-gender language to relaunch themselves and to find a new topic. I was going to say abortion has come back to the forefront, yes. which was something that many t took for granted already. And this is what is surprising. Is we, I mean, in, in recent uh, months, we have seen, for instance, a strong struggle against abortion in the Netherlands. No one would have expected that in the Netherlands with campaigns, with people distributing leaflets on the streets. So indeed, things that were unthinkable are happening again. 
I think it's partly, it has been cooking for some time. The thing is, progressive actors uh, didn't see that for some time. If we come back to the European Union, so a policy that claims to defend and promote human rights and values, including gender equality, you've already mentioned it a little bit on how politicians that were part of the structure came in with these ideas, but you have found in your research that these anti-gender activists have made their way into the EU institutions. So a two-part question, what's the state of play and how are actors that promote gender equality reacting to this? Well, I would say on the state of play, there are two things. There is a major increased presence. That's clear. At the same time, you have no major victory. And one of the results of the latest European elections is to other actors understood that they had to do something. A very good example is the president of the commission herself. She is not known as a feminist. She is not known. I mean, she's from a conservative party, but she has been very vocal in defending fundamental rights. And this is new. And this is a reaction we and see. And promoting parity. In yeah, the, LGBT, in the uh, LGBT rights. She mm -hmm. had very courageous, a uh, very courageous speech against Poland. So they start to do things, and this is new. But at the same time, what you see is both in the European Parliament, you have an increased presence of. MEPs work close to these groups, especially in the two groups connected to the far right, but not only, also the mainstream right, the EPP, and also some socialists, for instance, in Bulgaria or Romania, for strange reasons. Well, yes, we it's, don't it's really kind understand, of hard to understand. Yeah. And the commission, it's harder to know. We know that there are some civil servants, but it's harder to trace. And uh, what you see, it's also an increased presence in terms of civil society. So, and and this, this has been really a change. You have no, the same sort of civil society for conservative They've causes. They've come out of their closet, in yeah. a way. Actually, a friend uh, with whom I work closely, who is the head of one of the progressive NGOs, says, well, at some point he was meeting one of the heads of these conservative NGOs in the queue for sandwiches in the European area of Brussels. So it's really locally present in the same neighborhood and sharing, working as any other kind of lobby. And then the response for progressive, I mean, that has changed over the period of 10 years and I've been involved with several of them and talking to them for that period. And it's really trying to get prepared so that, for instance, something they do, two, two main things they do. One is when you start a campaign, you already try to foresee the resistance you can encounter or you frame it differently. The other thing is you also try to keep an eye on your opponents. So it means that you have also to dedicate part of your resources to watch the people who are going to oppose you. And this is something new that wasn't there. That was there in the U.S. for a long time because the, con the context was very different. But in Europe, it's a very new phenomenon. Well, one of the things that you've mentioned is the articulation, very, very well done, that these groups have, including different geographies. For me, coming from Latin America, it's been very amazing to see the same discourse, the same scapegoats and the same ways of speaking about gender and abortion and same-sex marriages in the Dominican Republic, for example, and in Poland, two countries that have nothing to do with each other. We don't necessarily see the same articulation on the other side, and this might be one of the biggest challenges. What does your research say about this? Well, progressive actors have also globalized, but in different ways, not necessarily the same way. And, and often they were trying to get a political influence. So, for instance, especially in Europe, they were focused on the European Union. It was a, one of the main venues where they could get victories. So sometimes not investing maybe enough time and energy in building a global network, but these networks exist and they've been reinforcing. On the conservative side, I mean, the first geography and why Europe and Latin America, it's because of the Catholic Church. So there are the two 
regions where the church has been historically very strong, and also with an intellectual power, in a sense that with Catholic universities, places where you have influential intellectuals who can actually produce a discourse and a strategy. The case of the U.S. is a bit odd because, no, you have these anti-gender campaigns, but they really started in 2016 as a new discourse by actors who, who have been mobilized for a very long time, but with a different sort of language. So all the U.S. conservative, all the Christian right, they were using other things. But they've always had connections. The U.S. Catholic Church is very influential in Rome, and, and so you had bridges, and also in Latin America. And then you see similar networks with the far right, which are more recent, but they try to do that. And it's very interesting to see what's happening in Spain and Portugal, obviously, for obvious reasons within two regions. So Vox has been very active trying to find partners in Latin America. They often go to Latin America to find people and vice versa. And the same is now happening in Portugal with Ventura and Chega. And they're also trying to have contacts with especially the people around Bolsonaro in Brazil. And from there, the same people connect Vox, especially connects also to European far-right actors. And so it's how you can st start to just building a network, a more global network. One of the things you mentioned also shows up in your recent research is about how to counteract this uh, kind of campaigns. And you mentioned in one of your recent articles that education is not necessarily the main solution because these are actors that are creating also content and creating uh, ideology and creating um, the basis, the ideological basis of this. So what are some ideas that are circulating among progressive actors to see if we can balance the, this approach? Yeah. So about first the books, I mean, we have sometimes this a bit naive idea that if you read books, you will become enlightened and progressive and that all these things come together. I would disagree. You have some people who are really enlightened, or at least they have uh, a lot of knowledge, but they're not necessarily progressive. So the things can be disconnected. And indeed, you have an intellectual involvement, including uh, building new institutions. I mean, the way Viktor Orban has reorganized higher education in Hungary is not only closing CEU, it's also looking at the curriculum, putting his friends in the boards of many institutions. I know the EU has recently reacted to that. And uh, in Hungary, you have also a new institution, Collegium Intermarium, which uh, was established by Otto Juris, which is one of the main anti-gender organizations. So you have a strong involvement in higher education and producing ideas. Then strategies is... Uh, but there is no magic solution because otherwise we would have already solved that. So <laughs> exactly. it's not easy. There are different things. I mean, one, there, there has been efforts around the issue of framing. So it's really trying to frame the discourse in a way that we can convince average citizens, what they call the movable middle. So the people who can be, uh, they can change their mind because they don't have a strong opinion for or against and, and they're willing to listen. And in that case, the example is uh, Ireland, where that has been used successfully in the referendum on same-sex marriage and then abortion, the really moving the majority of the Irish population into uh, supporting rights. That's one strategy. The other thing is, with more convinced actors, it doesn't work, and you also need to understand what's happening. So it's really producing knowledge, keeping an eye on what's happening, trying to understand the language of these people. Then other things people have tried to do is, is really sharing information, and that is good. So over the last year, I have, and, and I'm not the only one, talked and, and given trainings to all sorts of actors, just explaining what are these actors, how they organize, what is their discourse. And then the key elements they use are uh, freedom of religion and freedom of speech. 
which are two uh, rights that are recognized in all democratic states, in all important documents. So freedom of religion, it's for instance, well, you, you need to be uh, just forbidding uh, discrimination would be against freedom of religion because you should be free to discriminate because of your religion. Freedom of speech, we see, we see that in Britain, for instance, at the moment, there is a huge debate in universities. The idea is that there would be no free speech for conservative in universities. So we need to ensure that they have also a space where they can voice their concerns and their ideas. And that sort of discourse, well, if you try to counteract that, but you need, if you're an, a politician, an MEP, they have tons of things to do, so they can't follow everything, but they need to know that when they see that, they should be careful. But the whole debate about wokeism, it's also about trying to redraw public debate about what can be said or not said in what sense. And I was discussing the other day with a friend working in, in, in human rights. No, it has become polarizing for some actors just to defend fundamental rights. So you say, what's happening? Just if defending fundamental right is not something that makes consensus, but that polarizes. What do you tell activists and our students who are trying to, to gain space by speaking about these things? Let's give them some hope. Yeah, I think we, we need... I mean, activism, it's always about hope, but sometimes it can be uh, out of despair. Uh, the friends in Brazil know they're a bit relieved, but in the last years, it was really out of despair. But still, you can just stop and uh, stay alone and, and not do anything, but then nothing is going to change. Or you try to do something and sometimes it works. As It has worked uh, narrowly, but it has worked in Brazil uh, recently. So I think it's doing different things. And, and for students, it's really, I mean, they're two, at least two choices, two or three choices. One thing is about their uh, future career, what they want to do. Some of your students work in those organizations and European institutions on those issues. Uh, the other thing is also just by producing knowledge. You can also help actors by producing and sharing the knowledge you produce uh, and uh, helping them understand better the situation. And for some of us, it will just be the right to survive, to exist. So this is not to take from, for granted. Thank you very much, David Paternot, for joining us today and help us make sense of this very complicated topic that is so, so close to our hearts. Thanks a lot. Making sense of EU.